Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. On October 11th, 2018, something like a miracle took place. The President of the United States signed the Orange G. Hatch Bob Goodlatte Music Modernization Act into law, the first major revision of American music copyright since 1976. And before that, it was the 1909 Copyright Act that established the majority of statutes that define music copyright to this day. There have been some point solutions along the way, like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, but we haven't seen reform like this in a generation. So in this episode of Musonomics, why did the law have to be changed? What caused the stars to align to make it happen? And what happens next? We spoke with attorney Jacqueline Charlesworth, former U.S. Associate Registrar of Copyright, Mitch Glazer, President of the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, and music industry journalist Rob Levine. But first... Recorded music is unique among the arts. It contains two copyrights. The one for that particular sound recording, usually controlled by the performer or their record label, and the one for the composition, which is controlled by the songwriters and their music publishing companies. There's a cascade of licensing and subsequent royalty payments that come to each of these music creators based on how the music is being used, whether pressed into a disc, streamed, or broadcast on radio. Although there was some legislation that impacted the way music could be used on the internet in the 1990s, the last major update to the laws governing these music rights was passed in 1976, the same year Apple Computer was founded. And yet, those 1976 laws were governing what was happening with 21st century digital music, a situation no one was happy with. It was so bad, stakeholder groups that are often at odds, the songwriters, the publishers, record labels, digital music companies, and broadcasters, created a strong coalition that worked together to craft the compromises necessary to get the bill passed. Here's what's in the bill. The MMA improves compensation to songwriters and streamlines how their music is licensed. It creates a blanket license for digital music service providers to offer permanent downloads and on-demand streams. It creates a mechanical licensing collective to administer that blanket license. It creates and maintains a public database of all the songs, owners, and percentage ownership of songs co-written by several writers. And it will help to match musical works with their sound recordings. This is important for digital music services that know the name of the artist and the title of the song that they're playing, but probably don't know the names of all of the writers and their publishers and their share of each composition. It makes sure legacy artists who recorded music before 1972 to be paid royalties whenever their music is played on digital radio. And it provides a way for producers and engineers to receive royalties for their contributions to the music they helped create. What's not in the bill? Well, U.S. terrestrial radio stations, AMFM Radio, is still exempt from paying a performance royalty to the performers of the songs that they play. Although digital radio-like services such as Pandora and SiriusXM do have to pay the performers. I talk about this in a recent op-ed I wrote for Billboard. You can find it on musonomics.com. But for now, let's dig into what's actually in the Music Modernization Act. 
Attorney Jacqueline Charlesworth knows the Copyright Act better than pretty much anyone. As the former general counsel for the National Music Publishers Association and the general counsel and associate register at the U.S. Copyright Office, now a lawyer at Covington Burling, she has a unique view on exactly how the laws were not working and was a central figure in the drafting of the new legislation. This process for the creation and enactment of the MMA uh, has been going on for a while. How does a law like this get written? <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting, uh, I think, especially in the copyright area, you often see uh, statutory changes uh, that are an outgrowth of very extensive negotiations by the interested parties, and this is certainly no exception to that. I was certainly involved behind the scenes in assisting Congress with the drafting and framing of this, which was, a, frankly, a real privilege, certainly a professional high point for me, uh, having worked on these issues for so many years. And part of that involves listening and sort of trying to understand. I was representing an MPA who took a leadership role in this, David Israelite and Danielle Aguirre, the general counsel there, heavily involved. And I was invited to assist them and work on their behalf, but really that was working on behalf of everyone who was interested in kind of framing the bill. And so some of it really was listening to what all the different, th the songwriters wanted, what the, the services wanted, and trying to figure out a structure uh, where it could all fit together and how to articulate that. Of course, I was really assisting Congress with that, and it was Congress's decision w what the legislation would finally look like. But it's such a technical area uh, that, you know, the behind-the-scenes effort really was critical. Was there ever a moment where you thought that this coalition of the willing would not hold together? Oh, well, there were many moments, Larry. <laughs> I mean, I, anything like this, I, it's funny because within my law firm, Covington and Burling, uh, I had a couple of associates helping me, and, and I first assigned the case, and they're like, wow, we're helping write legislation. This is so exciting. I said, don't, just don't get too excited yet. And this was now about a year ago. And there are just a lot of ups and downs in the process, but I never lost faith. But there were moments when, you know, it looked like things could take a very, it would take sort of a dark turn. Some, you know, someone would be lobbying heavily against the bill. I'm sure you know some of the history there. And things weren't looking promising. And with this bill, too, there was particular interest. There was a lot of uh, interest in working quickly because the main sponsors, Representative Goodlatte and Senator Hatch, are both retiring from Congress. Mm. And so there was really the clock sort of felt like it was ticking mm. on us in terms of trying to make sure it got to the votes it needed to, to have. So there was a lot of time pressure. Can you explain uh, why those who thought that, well, if it didn't succeed this time, we can just try again in the next legislative session, why does legislation around copyright not work that way? Well, I, mean, I think sometimes it, it does. Like with the 1976 Copyright Act, I mean, that went on for 20 years. And at the end of it, the uh, head of the Copyright Office said, well, this is a great 1950s Copyright Act. So, uh, you know, it can go on. And here, of course, you know, the MMA, there was there's the piece, the mechanical licensing piece, but there's other parts of it, the Classics Act, which deals with pre-72 recordings and the AMP Act, that actually had been floating around as pieces of legislation uh, over the last few years. And finally got 
tied to to the MMA or the the mechanical uh, licensing portion. So I think part of it is educating Congress. There has been a lot of legislation attempted over especially the last decade that hasn't seen its way to fully become law. Why did the Music Modernization Act succeed now? I think there are a number of factors, but mainly it was that we finally had the music industry in agreement. In the past, we've had the record labels maybe on one side, the music publishers on another, and everyone kind of seeing it as a a finite pie that where no one could take a bigger piece or the other person would lose out. Now what we have is a very unified music industry in terms of the music publishers, the songwriters, the record labels, and so forth. And then on the other side, you had the digital services who are now obviously, this is the main way people experience music, and they need a good licensing system. And it was very clear that the over 100-year-old mechanical licensing system was completely not up to the job. So I think you had a confluence of those factors. In addition to the fact you had Congress was quite interested in it. Uh, a few years back, uh, Chairman Goodlatte of the Judiciary Committee had commenced a review of the copyright, the entire Copyright Act. The Copyright Office wrote a report on the music licensing system, which I think was very influential and educated Congress a lot about the problems. And then you had Chairman Goodlatte and Senator Hatch very interested. Um, and another um, important uh, player here was Doug Collins in the House of Representatives, who really cares deeply about songwriters, who kind of just became very impassioned about this issue. And so you had you sort of the, the sun, the moon, and the stars aligned. And, and that's why we ended up here. A confluence of forces then came together really out of necessity and also opportunity. Yes. I mean, a couple of things, very specific things also were going on. Um, One was Spotify had been sued by a number of publishers in several different actions because they had a lot of songs on their system that were unlicensed. And, you know, big streaming services now have 40 or 50 million tracks. I mean, imagine our current system is song-by-song licensing. That's a very difficult situation for a service like Spotify that needs to have a full, fully licensed service. So they had uh, been sued because various copyright owners, songwriters saw their songs on Spotify. They were unlicensed and there were significant class actions filed with, you know, big numbers attached to them because you have statutory damages up to $150,000 per work. So Spotify, I think, in particular, had a lot of reason to be concerned about the current licensing system. On the other side of the coin, there's sort of a strange part of the Copyright Act, hopefully to be changed very soon, where uh, you can, if you can't find the owner of a song in the records of the Copyright Office, which is not infrequent, um, you can file your notice of license, an individual notice of license, with the Copyright Office, and you don't have to pay royalties for that song. Under current copyright law, the kind of license required for a song composition for reproduction and distribution is called a mechanical license, or a Section 115 license, after its section in the law. Those that want to license compositions needed to obtain a specific license for every single work that was going to be performed. The request to license under the guidelines of the law was called a Notice of Intent, or NOI. 
This is different for users like radio, where companies can get an annual license that covers the entire catalog of a performing rights organization like ASCAP or BMI, CSAC, or Global Music Rights. Those kinds of licenses are called a blanket license. Right. So uh, the way the uh, Section 115 license worked in general was you had to figure out who the owner of the song was, the publisher, as you just said, uh, and serve the notice of license, the statutory license on that publisher. So if you could find them, you sent the notice to that publisher and then you began paying that publisher. But if you couldn't find them and you couldn't and you looked in the copyright office and didn't see them there, then you could serve that notice on the copyright office. And before the rise of digital services, you know, they were filed on paper. Uh, I mean, I can personally tell there were a few drawerfuls of them. You know, it was a rare occurrence that anyone bothered doing this at the copyright office um, because we didn't have anything on the scale of Spotify, iTunes, and so forth. But when Google and Amazon and, and others launched, they saw this mechanism of the ability to file the NOIs with the Copyright Office as a way to help cover themselves for the licensing issue. And the Copyright Office had, in I think it was 2011, updated the regs so there was you could file now file these notices digitally and in mm. bulk. And so uh, that started happening in, in huge numbers. So. Uh, that was another precipitating factor here because the publishers saw this, the listings on the Copyright Office website, and said, wait a minute, these are current songs. How is it they can't find people? Millions and millions of filings instead of a proper licensing system where we're getting paid or and the songwriters are getting paid. So that was also a huge issue on the publisher side. So until now, there has been no blanket license for mechanical uses of musical compositions in digital music services. Yes. At some point, you do have to associate the, the track that's being used with the as you said, the underlying composition and who owns it. And that's always been the biggest data problem in our system in general, because when the tracks are sent off to the service, the record label may have the name of the track, the featured artists, um, maybe an ISRC, which is a code that's associated with the sound recording, mm. but there may not be, or typically wouldn't be, the identification of the publisher and so forth. And so, I mean, years ago, I remember saying, whoever figures this out is the keys to the kingdom, right? Because it's matching the track to the underlying work. That's the part of the data that are that's missing. In any event, uh, very important, you know, to... Uh, try and make it simple for the services to get licenses. And so by not having them all individually searching and trying to match the tracks to the to the publishers, that burden is then shifted to a central a new agency who will be only doing it once, in theory, for, for the benefit of everyone. And that's the uh, Mechanical Licensing Collective. So it basically takes the problem out of the hands of the services and moves it to the MLC. And in exchange for that, the services will be funding and paying for the operations of the MLC. But again, it's a lot more efficient because currently you've had Apple and Spotify and Amazon, all these, all Google, they're all looking for the same information. Mm -hmm. So this should be uh, much more efficient overall. How will the process work for appointing a someone or a company to operate the MLC? 
Well, there are certain criteria in the statute, and it basically it has to be an entity that is capable of performing the functions of the MLC. And there's an actual regulatory process around it where the Register of Copyrights will initiate a proceeding and actually designates a private, it's a private entity, it has to be a nonprofit, it has to be, you know, a new, something new and solely devoted to this purpose. And so the register will sort of open a proceeding and then designate a company or a nonprofit uh, for this purpose after making sure that uh, they're capable of really, you know, providing the technology and the services that are required under the statute. Another key element of the MMA, after the creation of the Blanket Mechanical License and the MLC, was regarding federal protection for recordings made before 1972. Mitch Glazer, the president of the RIAA, explains why this had not existed until now. I caught up with Mitch at the Mondo Music and Technology Festival, so this is a little noisy. It was a fluke of history, and like a lot of public policy, Congress enacts protections like a flashpoint in time for a particular technology, because the advent of that technology creates a need to do something. And so for years and years, all stemming back to a lack of a terrestrial broadcast right for radio, performers had no performance rights. It sounds weird to say that. The only group of people that didn't have a performance right were performers and their record labels. And what happened was after a huge study, the Copyright Office basically said, this is crazy. There's piracy happening. People can now steal and record albums. What are we going to do about it? And so Congress decided to create a right for the first time federally for sound recordings, but only for distribution and reproduction. Why? A performance right would implicate broadcasters. And so that started the sort of patchwork quilt of limited numbers of rights, and then legislation is usually prospective only. So all of a sudden you had two worlds. You had the world of recordings made before 1972, which were protected still by the states, which used to be all recordings. And then after the enactment of legislation to protect distributions and reproductions, you had federal protection for post-72, and we had to live in that world until right now. As I had asked Jacqueline, I asked Mitch, too, about the collection of companies that came together to get this bill passed. How typical was the process? It was unusual, and I think everybody realized after it was over how important it was, and it's a great lesson for all of us moving forward. The engagement from actual creators on this bill was unlike anything we've ever seen before. There certainly was a lot of behind-the-scenes record-building and advocating by people who do that professionally. But this was a campaign, a public campaign from the outside in that affected policymakers, and that was all the creative community. Songwriters literally descended on Washington, D.C. They wouldn't leave until this bill became law. 300 artists signed an ad to go into political papers to stand up and say, this has to happen. Two dozen artists 
high-profile artists and not all legacy artists. Young artists that want to support their mentors and the people who inspired them wrote op-eds, called members of Congress. How, you know, how often is it that top artists in the world take the time to call up a senator and say, this has got to happen? And at the end of the day, that campaign was absolutely necessary to push this over the finish line. The urgency to get the bill passed in this session of Congress was dramatically illustrated when it was hotlined in the U.S. Senate, a procedure that passes a bill by unanimous voice vote. That means if just one of 100 senators vote no, the whole process is stalled. It was a risky tactic. At the very end of the process, in the Senate, the bill was hotlined. What does that mean when a bill is hotlined in the Senate? It used to be, in the old days, there was actually a phone in the cloakrooms. There's a meeting room for Republicans and a meeting room for Democrats right off the voting floor called the cloakroom. And in each one, there used to be a phone and it was called a hotline. And if you wanted to do something by unanimous consent, where no senator was going to object to it so it could move quickly, you would actually pick up the phone and call each office and say, hey, are you okay with this bill? Today it's all computerized, but it's still called a hotline. So basically an email from each cloakroom at the direction of the leadership from both sides goes out to all 100 offices and it says, this bill is up for consideration. Are you okay with it? And then they wait to see whether or not there are any objections. And that's the hotline process. And the MMA was hotlined very late in the process. And between the time that that happened and the Senate unanimously passed the bill, and then it was sent back to the House and ultimately the president's desk, did anything have to be ironed out? Yes. So the last holdout on the bill, the last stakeholder, uh, was Sirius XM. And they weren't happy with a few parts of the bill, but at the end of the day, what they were most concerned about was changing the rate standard, going to a rate standard that would reflect fair market value based on market rates. Because right now, that's not the standard in the law that applies to them. And so a senator who was concerned about their ability to have time to adapt in the marketplace objected to the bill. We call that putting a hold on the bill. And so we all descended uh, in his office and a deal was finally worked out, which often is how it happens in legislation. It takes five years to build a record and then the last 20 minutes are when a final deal is, is worked out. But it was a compromise that gave business certainty to both sides. And basically, it allowed SiriusXM to pay what they pay today going forward until 2027, which will give them business certainty through that time, save both sides litigation costs so they don't have to litigate another royalty rate in 2022, and then it will go to willing buyer, willing seller, so that artists ultimately get a willing buyer, willing seller, or fair market value rate, but Sirius has time to adapt before that rate kicks in. And that was the compromise. Journalist Rob Levine has covered the MMA extensively for Billboard and has spoken to many music industry insiders as the legislation made its way from the House to the Senate, back to the House, and to the Oval Office. What do you say when somebody says to you, yeah, well, you know, if it didn't succeed this time, there was always next year? I know and respect a lot of writers who said that, 
but it funded, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the compromise at the core of the bill. The compromise at the center of that was publishers get more control over a collecting society for mechanical royalties. That's good for them. Arguably, I think, for songwriters as well. That is administered by publishers and songwriters. It's paid for by digital streaming services. Mm-hmm. What do the streaming services get? They get a safe harbor from statutory damages for infringement of mechanical copyrights for lawsuits that are filed after December 31st, 2017. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you haven't filed a lawsuit already, you can't collect statutory damages, which are up to 150000 per work infringed, whether or not the song is popular, whether or not it's any good. Mm-hmm. Instead, you get actual damages, which is another way of saying they pay you the royalties you should have collected anyway. You know, we're living at a time when DC is very divided. There's a lot of urgent issues about which there's not much agreement. The various components of the music business went to Congress and said, this is a passable bill. It's going to make you look good. You know, people like the idea of a bipartisan bill. They like the idea of cooperating instead of arguing as a sort of fun change of pace from the usual. Uh They like the idea of getting something done. It's hard to pass legislation these days. What surprised you the most in hindsight now that the process is pretty much over? Actually, not as much as you'd think. I mean, going by the standards of the music business, which has been, you know, sort of all kinds of unexpected things happened. This went a lot according to plan, especially by Washington standards. The serious stuff, it was stronger than they thought. I think it went later than they thought. But, you know, Sirius is the only company that lost three ways. You know, they have to pay for pre-72 sound recordings, mm-hmm. lost one. The criteria for rate setting in their copyright royalty board proceedings changes, mm. two. They're going to pay more to publishers and perhaps more to collecting societies. Three, it's not balanced by a win, except for Pandora, which now, of course, they own. So, you know, if you look at the bill, you can tell they're going to be a determined opponent. Have you thought much or or talked to any of your sources about the speed bumps ahead, about implementing really the the toughest part of the bill? Well, the part that's hard is going to be the mechanical licensing reform. You know, there is going to be a mechanical license collection entity that's going to do this. And the bill lays out in some detail who's going to run it, what the process is for selecting the board of directors. It's publishers and some songwriters. Mm. You know, my guess is it might take longer and cost more than people think. That's not at all to doubt the people involved in it. But most things take longer and cost more than you think, especially when you're dealing with a project of this size. I don't think that's going to be a problem. You know, they're not going to do everything perfectly. Someone will complain when they don't do everything perfectly. But, you know, there's a tendency, you don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right now, you have an enormous amount of money that's not getting paid out, which creates a lot of money not getting paid and creates a major legal risk for the streaming services. This solves those problems. 
Rob notes that the creation of the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, will likely be similar to when Sound Exchange was established in 2000 to handle the licensing, royalty collection, and distribution for sound recording copyrights used by digital music services. You know, um, one thing that's interesting is to look back when Sound Exchange was formed. Look at what people said. The labels are going to run this. They're going to be corrupt. They're not going to be able to pay people out. It's going to be a disaster. Well, gradually, the labels have become a little less influential in sound exchange. It runs with more independence. I don't know how to measure that. There's various ways you could try to measure it. I don't know if any of them are completely reliable, but it does run with a lot more independence. It does a pretty good job. It's not perfect, but it's real good. And as a percent, it charges a very low percentage of the money it collects for administration. This society is going to charge the least because the streaming services are going to pay the expenses. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, you feel that, hey, I'm getting 5% less than I should be getting. Someone's ripping me off. But by the way, normally they would charge 10% as an administration fee, and I'm not getting charged an administration fee at all. On balance... That's great. Mm -hmm. I, I hope everyone gets the full amount of money. I think eventually they will. Mm -hmm. You're also, in both cases, you're, you know, you're relying on people to come forward and say that you owe the money. You know, every year, Sound Exchange publishes a list of people they can't reach. Mm. Some people say, wow, Sound Exchange is so stupid, they couldn't find these people. I look at it as the manager's hall of shame. Mm. You know, if you're a manager, it's your job to say, hey, here I am. I'm being a little glib, but, you know, it takes two sides. Assuming there's no systemic corruption, it takes two sides to get found and get paid. And I think that'll happen. For over 40 years, the music industry has operated under copyright laws crafted when 8-track cartridges were the state of mobile music technology. CDs were still in the future, and streaming on a smartphone was the stuff of science fiction. The Music Modernization Act promises to address the biggest issues raised by digital distribution. Both the music and technology industries will benefit immensely, so long as this coalition of the willing can continue to work together over the next several years. We'll be watching. Thank you to our featured guests, Jacqueline Charlesworth, Mitch Glazer, and Rob Levine. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Production assistance this episode from NYU Steinhardt students Kelly Lynn, Brianna Barzola, Cecilia Polo Fritz, and Marta Bento. Technical production from Merritt Jacob. Our associate producer is Laurie Jacobson of Jaybird Communications. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it's so important to helping new listeners find our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Musonomics. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, reach us through the website at musonomics.com. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.